Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in the Greenville area of South Carolina. I'm your host, as always, Stan McCune, realtor right here in the greater Greenville area. And as always, you can find all of my contact information in the show notes if you need to reach out to me for any reason, particularly if you have any real estate needs. Go to the show notes. There you will find my contact information. Reach out to me at any time. Um, And I always ask you guys, please, in whatever podcast app you're using, please hit the five-star button and leave a short little review. We had a few of you that that responded to that this past week, and I appreciate that. Um, Let's get as many of those as possible to get as many good ratings, good reviews, uh, and and more people to be able to listen to this podcast as they see it, as it gets pushed up in the rankings for the different podcast apps. Please hit the subscribe button, leave a five-star rating, and leave a short little review. That's all I ask. It only takes you a few seconds to do those things. Today, we're going to be talking about a little bit of a broader topic than strictly uh, Greenville related topics. Um, But I always warn you guys in these instances, when I'm talking about something that's a little bit broader, it is always from a Greenville lens because the real estate market really does vary dramatically within the US from one area of the country to another. So even when I cover a broader topic, it's not necessarily going to apply in San Francisco or in New York or in Chicago. So I always give that warning, or I try to always give that warning when we're doing a broader topic like this. But the topic that I want to cover, because I work with a lot of investor clients, and this is how I got into real estate, if you know my background, um, it's frequent investor mistakes. And I've got five of them here. Um, And I've talked about, you know, specifics of what investors do and what they shouldn't do over the years. Um, but I haven't really talked about, just had an episode, at least I can't remember. I've, I've now done two years worth of, over two years worth of episodes, so it's hard to keep up with everything. Um, but I don't think I've ever done one that specifically hones in on investor mistakes, common real estate investor mistakes. And so that was something that was on my mind recently. Um, and I was like, you know what, that would be a good topic for the pod. So here we go. I've got basically five frequent investor mistakes, with number one being not adjusting to the market or not adjusting with the market. Here's the thing. There are always real estate investing deals out there. Always. I I am a true believer of that, no matter where you are in what part of the country. uh, But specifically here in the Greenville area, I have seen, I have been through the market since the Great Recession. So I've seen that part where it was an insane buyer's market, all the way through the past few years, which has been an insane seller's market. And guess what? There are deals in all of those markets. Um, You need to be able to adjust with the market and to understand what the market is offering you. And here's the thing. In uh, In a buyer's market, there are different challenges than there are in a seller's market. But there are always going to be good deals out there. What, however, you might have to keep in mind is that different markets demand different amounts of capital. For instance, in a buyer's market, you can get things cheaper. Uh, You don't need to have as much capital in order to make a play in a buyer's market. But are your margins going to be as high? Maybe not. Are you going to have higher vacancy rates? Most likely. 
Um, so you have to be aware of that and you have to adjust for that. Your margins and your vacancy rates, all of these different things are going to be different based on the market that you're in. Some markets are better uh, for buy and holds. Some markets are better for flipping houses, etc. A lot of people will, will base what they think is a good deal or not off of formulas and rules of thumb. And I'm fine with that to a certain extent. Formulas help us to be able to uh, compare different deals, but your formula has to be fluid and your, your rules of thumb have to be fluid because what was a really good deal three years ago would be an unbelievable deal today, right? And so you have to understand if you're comparing today's deals to three years ago, you're not going to actually find any deals. You're just going to be uh, tossing up your hands and just saying, where are all the deals? Well, uh, they're not the same as they were back then. You have to be able to adjust your expectations and to, uh, to think on the fly. And so frequently I see investors that are, that are doing this. They, they have a 2017, 2018, 2019 mindset, and they're bringing that into the market today. Um, and that's fine. That's going to that's gonna cause you as an investor, if that's what you're doing, that's going to cause you to be incredibly cautious, but it's also going to cause you to probably miss out on a lot of opportunities. And, th- and that's the thing is that people look back on years and years ago and say, man, if only I had bought that. You know, n- Nobody thought that that was a good investment at the time, but man, that was a great investment at the time. How do we miss out on that? I constantly see this. I constantly see deals from or, or, or see real estate transactions that happened, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, that in hindsight, it's like, man, if we could go back in time, it's just like, you know, if you went back in time and bought Tesla stock when it was like hardly worth anything, uh, you would do that, right? Everyone, everyone would do that. Um, well, real estate is the same way. The people that make the most money in real estate are the ones that are able to adjust for the market and are able to identify the deals in the market. If you don't think that there are any deals in the market, if you're not identifying any, then you're doing it wrong. That is the reality. If if you're saying, oh, because nothing here matches, nothing here is as good as what it was in 2018, then you're assessing the market the wrong way. There are deals. And five years from now, we'll look back and say, yep. There were a ton of deals during that during in the year 2022. There were a ton of deals in that year that that people overlooked because they were so focused on hitting this formula or hitting this rule of thumb, et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, number two on my list is kind of in a different direction. It's focusing, and I see this from a lot of investors. It's well. I'll just describe it in two words because some of you guys will be familiar with this phrase, scarcity mindset, okay? Um, Now, real estate investors are not your stereotypical people to have a scarcity mindset. So you might be surprised that I'm saying that because most real estate investors do have an abundance mindset. They're willing to, uh, to, you know, take multiple liens against their home in order to be able uh, to finance their next flip uh, that is a really risky venture, um, and in hopes of 
making a few making a few dollars on the flip, right? They're, real estate investors, by definition, tend to be risk takers, tend to have more of an abundance mindset. But I've noticed that there is a scarcity mindset when it comes specifically to shaving a few dollars off of uh, off of your loss on the P&L or off of your expenses on the flip. Just sh- trying to shave a few dollars and doing that at the expense of building relationships and of building a good team. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily that you can only have a good team if they're expensive. But what I see so often from investors is that they try to go the cheapest route for different things, and then, particularly when it comes to labor or for people on their team, and then in the end, they sacrifice the relationships that would pay off for them down down the road uh, because they're just trying to save a buck, and that is a scarcity mindset. This is especially true for contractors, right? Uh, we hear this all the time, people that are kind of getting into the market. Who are your investor-friendly contractors. And that phrase, investor-friendly, by definition, uh, the vast majority of people mean uh, cheap, right? Penny, Who's going to be the pennies on the dollar contractor uh, that I can use to get this done cheaper than, than everyone else? Listen, going with the cheapest contractor is a bad idea uh, on so many different levels. Um, and you're hearing from someone that knows this from firsthand experience. What's better? Find a contractor that you can have a relation, a good relationship with who's not the cheapest, but who is really good. It is a great communicator and gets things done quickly and stands by his or her word. That is the way to go about it. And, and once you build those types of relationships, it starts to, it, it pays off in so many ways. It pays off in, you know, I've seen contractors that have brought deals to me that I've had a good relationship with. Contractors that um, are, because they they know that, um, that they're going to keep getting business from you, they will ultimately throw in some, some extras in there that perhaps, you know, if you were going with the bottom of the barrel, uh, guy in terms of pricing, he, he's not going to throw in any sort of extras in there because he's already giving you such a such a cheap deal. Um, again, I, I think I'm I think I'm preaching to the choir to some extent because real estate investors, they all say that they know this, but then practically when it comes down to it, it's always like, okay, who's my cheapest guy? Particularly for the novice guys. I think the experienced uh, investors out there, they they get this. They get what I'm saying. But if you're kind of a newer investor, don't fall for the trap of just going for the cheapest. I'll say this is also true uh, for us as realtors as well, right? Because there are, you can find realtors at all sorts of different pricing levels. Uh, You can find listing agents that will basically just throw a house on the market for a few hundred bucks and then just have you do all the legwork on the back end. Um, There are Others that I know some agents that, uh, you know, are investors themselves, but they also have a brokerage. And so they will, you know, put something on the market and then all kind of manage it, but not really manage it, right? Let, let me tell you why that, I, I don't want to toot my own horn. 
right? But I am a realtor, and this podcast, I don't get compensated from this podcast. This podcast ultimately is, uh, it only supports me insofar as it supports my direct business. So I am going to toot my horn here for a second. Over the weekend, and uh, I'm recording this right after Mother's Day weekend. It's going to probably come out in a week or two. Um, But over Mother's Day weekend, at 11 a.m. on Sunday, on Mother's Day, I received a phone call from an appraiser. Um, Now, let me just start for a second. Not many realtors are going to answer their phone at 11 a.m. on a Sunday, particularly on Mother's Day. Um, If you go with a cheap realtor... (laughs) I can almost assure you they are not going to be answering their phone in that instance. A number pops up that they don't recognize. Not going to not gonna answer it. Um, me, I was available. Um, I wasn't in a worship service at that time. I answered the phone. It was an appraiser. The appraiser was calling me to ask about um, how much I knew about a house that he was appraising for a former client of mine. However, this is a This is a a client of mine that has done several transactions with me. And the reason why he was calling me, and and I knew this in advance, was that this client of mine who had uh, bought this house and had bought and sold through me a a house close to it, um, he had done an off-market type of transaction with a friend of his to basically sell the house that he had flipped off-market to the friend. So now the appraiser is calling me because he wants some additional information. I had been inside that house. And also, I had been inside the house uh, that was nearby that my client had also flipped. The appraiser couldn't couldn't come up to the, to the purchase price that they had this house under contract for. Um, and he wanted to to try to get more information. And and I appreciated that. I appreciated that he he was trying to find a way to make it work. Um, Now, here's the thing. I'm not getting any commission on that house. I'm not benefiting in any tangible way. And my client, if, if I had just blown off that phone call, my client would have never, my former client would have never found out. But you know what? Because he and I have an established relationship I spent 15 minutes on Mother's Day on the phone with that appraiser. Then I gave my client heads up, got more information from my client, passed that along to the appraiser, and I'm I'm pretty confident that I saved my client several thousand dollars. That the appraiser uh, the appraisal would have come in several thousand dollars lower than it did if it were not for my conversation that I had with him at 11 a.m. Uh, on Mother's Day. So, does it all come back if? You know, my client had been using other realtors that, you know, were kind of more that basic bottom of the barrel service, but are cheaper. Um, would it all have come around in the end? I, I believe that he ended up getting more money by means of me being able to help him in a situation where I wasn't getting money, but I did that because we had that past relationship and I was happy to do that for him and to help him out took time out of my schedule for something that I wasn't going to be compensated for in order to help him out. And so you have to remember when you're just saving a buck just to try to 
increase your bottom line by, by just a little bit, you may not be benefiting yourself in the long run. That's something to keep in mind. Uh, number three, um, specifically for buy and holds. So not so much for flips, but specifically for buy and holds. Uh, the third investor mistake that I see frequently is focusing too much on the current situation. And what I mean by the current situation, current rents, current neighborhood, current condition of the house, rather than projecting those things. And it it's interesting to me how frequently I see this with people that have past real estate investing experience. Um, they get so caught up, well, the current rents are 500 a month per door. Like that doesn't fit the the 1% rule or that doesn't fit this rule or, or that's just too low. And it's like, yeah, we, we know it's too low. That's why it's on the market. That's why it's an opportunity because you can come in here and do some light improvements to it and then get rents per door up to 800 per month, for instance. Um, I see this all the time. People, when, when, when people are looking at properties, particularly rental properties, you have to look past the current situation. Factor in the current situation because it does impact the future. The current condition, for instance, does impact uh, what it will take to get it into better condition. The current neighborhood will impact your rents. So you don't completely ignore the current condition, but you have to focus more on your projections. And I've talked about this in the past. You have to be able to project what the rents will be, project what the neighborhood will be, project what the condition will be. And this ties into my first point about um, not adjusting with the market is that a lot of, when we look back, a lot of the great deals from the past 10 years that that we look back and are just like, wow, how did how did people miss out on that? It is very simple. It's because they just weren't able to project. They were so focused on, okay, yeah, this is a slum. I don't want to buy here. Um, rather than if they had just seen, okay, this is in the path of progress. Things are going to get better here at some point or at some time. It would have been very easy. This is a great deal. Um, and I have won and lost on this. Um, I, I have bought some things that I was, was able to purchase and spend more money than anyone else because I saw this is an awesome property. It's not awesome now, but it will be awesome. Everyone else passed on it or wasn't willing to go up as high as I was willing to go up to. Um, and I won. I won out on that uh, on, in multiple different real estate investments that I've made. There's been several others where I passed up on something and now I look back and I'm like, wow, that was idiotic of me. I should, I should have uh, bought that all day, every day. Um, and as I keep doing this and as I keep educating myself on these different markets, I start to understand better how to project. Uh, but that is the number one, in my opinion, the number one most important thing to be able to do as an investor is to be able to project. And particularly with buy and holds, you need to be focused more on your projection than on the current situation. Uh, number four, um, not understanding how much due diligence is acceptable and or necessary. Um, due diligence is, is important. Right when you're looking at a house, you don't want to get something uh, that you have to completely rebuild if you're hoping for it to be a quick turnkey property. Right? The problem is, uh, 
a, a lot of investors don't understand the healthy balance between too much due diligence and not enough. And here's what I mean by that. Um, not enough due diligence is when you buy the property and then realize you're in way over your head in terms of what needs to be done to it. That's not enough due diligence. Too much due diligence is you need to have so many inspections done that you don't get the deal or that you talk yourself out of the deal because you've done so much due diligence and now you know every single thing wrong with the house and it's just more than you were expecting and now you want to back out. Um, that Probably right there, neck and neck with that uh, ability to project is the ability to know how much due diligence you need to, to do on a property. For me, um, in most parts, in, in most situations, I don't need to do a lot of due diligence to know if a property is the right fit or not. Um, I can, generally speaking, walk into a property, walk around it, and say, and look in the crawl space, look at the roof, look at the AC unit. Uh, if I can find the water heater, look at that, um, and say yes or no. I don't need to have a bunch of inspectors in. I don't need to do radon. I don't, you know, I don't need to do mold tests. I can, generally speaking, do that for myself. And I have some clients that that trust me with that level of due diligence as well. Um, but there are some times when you need to, uh, when when I need to do more due diligence than that as well. So it doesn't always work out that way, but. I have gotten to the point now where I'm comfortable with myself, with my knowledge of property, with my knowledge of real estate, that that's, that's how much due diligence I need to do in order to identify whether something is a good deal or not. Um, but a lot of people don't completely, they, they haven't gotten to that level of comfort yet with me or with themselves or whatever the case may be. And so they will err on the side of too much due diligence. Well, erring on the side of too much due diligence is going to make it very difficult for you to be able to actually uh, snag a good real estate deal. Um, but you need to, if, if you're not comfortable yet, if you haven't yet figured out uh, your own uh, due diligence models, as it were, um, in, in your mind, what needs to be accomplished for you to be comfortable with the house, um, then you, you need to, to determine, okay, what is the minimum amount that I need to be comfortable and to know that I'm getting something that I want? And once you get to that point, uh, then you have to consider, okay, this is what I'm comfortable with. Is this realistic? If your comfort level is doing a gazillion inspections and expecting that they're all going to come back clean, then you're probably not supposed to be a real estate investor. You go go do something else. <laughs> There's lots of other things you can do, um, other ways to to make a buck than than real estate. Um, but if you're really meant to be a real estate investor, then you will be able to find that balance between too much and not enough due diligence. Number five, um, and and this is something again. I see this. I, this is something that nobody has ever perfected. Okay, let me say it this way: um, every real estate investor struggles with this, and still and continually makes mistakes with this, no matter how long they do it. And that is either over improving a property, or cutting too many, or the wrong uh, corners. 
And this is this is one of the hardest things with real estate at the end of the day because uh, the world is your oyster. You can you can make turn a shack into the Taj Mahal if you want to, but is that the right decision to make? Um, you can cut corners everywhere, but is that the right decision to make? There there are all sorts of considerations when it comes to what type of improvements you should make and where you should cut corners. Um, and this is where it's it's really valuable to have the contractor that understands this. And, and this is why building a good relationship with a contractor and maintaining that relationship is so important because a good contractor can help to identify and 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 kind of speak the same language as you when it comes to improvements. Um, they shouldn't, and, and it takes some time. It takes some time for you guys to kind of get on the same page. But if you've got more affordable housing that is just very basic, bare bones, um, you know, it, it's never going to rent for tons and tons of money. You don't need to go in there and, uh, you know, for instance, scrape off the popcorn ceilings or do something with the textured ceilings. Um, it's completely unnecessary in a situation like that. Do something else. But if you're flipping a house, those popcorn ceilings, it's a possibility that they could be a problem. I would say uh, right now in this market, more often than not, you can get away with with popcorn ceilings, but nobody likes it. Nobody wants popcorn ceilings. Um, And so that could be something that is worth getting rid of. Um, and, And that's the thing is, that's the tricky thing is determining where uh, what improvements are too much and what improvements are not enough and at what point are you cutting too many corners or or maybe even not enough because let's be honest we all cut corners every house everywhere that is sold has had corner cutting somewhere that that's just undeniable Um, but there are some corner cutting that is not really important you know I, i showed a house recently that clearly had new, newer flooring, but there was no quarter round uh, that had been installed. Okay, so they they cut costs. They saved themselves a few hundred bucks by not having quarter round put in there. Big deal. That's not an important corner that was cut. Um, but someone that completely jacked up the plumbing on, on something, uh, risking it leaking and causing damage throughout the house, That's you don't want to cut corners there. And so these are the types of things that uh, every, I'm telling you, every investor makes mistakes when it comes when it comes to that. And that is a key skill that you have to hone over the years. And this is where, again, going back to the team, it's really helpful to have a team uh, that can help you to understand this. And with my clients that flip houses and that that buy rental properties and and whatnot, I gladly assist and give advice when it comes to this type of thing because I understand the market. I know what is required. I will walk through a house and tell someone, okay, this house, this is a $300,000 house. Here's what I think needs to be done in order for you to fetch the top price on this. And usually I approach it from the standpoint of, of the least uh, the the least viable option. What's the least that we can do to get the most money? Following you know, basically the 2080 rule. What's the 20% that we can do that's going to have an 80% impact on the home value? 
Um, same thing with renting. What is the the least that we can do to a rental property in order to be able to get rents to where they need to be? Maybe, maybe we could possibly do some additional updates that would be expensive, that would get rents from 900 to 1000 a month. But if we can save a lot of money to just get them to $900 a month when they have been at $500 a month, that might be what's worth it in the end. And so those are uh, things that I can assist with that I currently assist with a lot of my clients. And contractors to a certain extent can as well. Obviously, most contractors don't fully understand the real estate market side of things, but they can use some some common sense uh, and, and bring some common sense to bear when it comes to a rehab and to repair work. Um, and so that's those that's it. <laughs> those are the, the the five frequent investor mistakes that I came up with. I'm sure there are a, a bunch more. In fact, I'd be happy for you guys to uh, to give me a shout out and let me know of any others that you think I could have covered that I didn't. You can do that by texting me at my phone number. That's in the show notes or send me an email. That's also in the show notes. Um, reach out to me for any reason, for any time, uh, preferably not 11 a.m. on Mother's Day, but just know um, if I'm able to answer, I will, even at that time. Um, all of my information is in the show notes, and please, as I keep asking, please subscribe, rate, review the show so that we can get it out to as many people as possible, and I hope you guys have a great rest of the week. Stay safe. We'll talk again next time.